0: This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine.
1: News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future.
0: This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review.
2: This is Philip Nice from the trumpet.com. You've heard about Fox News, you've heard about Tucker Carlson, but what have you heard about Susan Rice? And what have you heard about who is really running America? And just how much deathware is the human race creating? Militaries are producing and procuring more weapons than ever. One of those nations is China, which is at the same time attempting to become a peace dealer in Ukraine and to replace America as the world's main international diplomatic power. Plus, a discussion on Sudan what it means for America, what it means for Russia, what it means for world trade and its striking historical precedent. All the news that's fit to know from the last seven days coming up next on Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour Week in Review this Friday, April the 28th, 2023. I'm happy to be joining you, our regular listeners and our new listeners out there in central Oklahoma, listening over the air on KPCG-FM and way out there listening online across America and even around the world. As is our custom, this is the Week in Review edition of Trumpet Hour. The show broadcasts on Wednesday as well, where we focus in on certain news and certain topics, and this Wednesday will be entirely devoted to the coronation, Britain, the empire, what made Britain so exceptional, and thereby what made America so exceptional, We'll look at how those exceptional traits were assembled and how they are now being disassembled. But for the weekend review, we mass four trumpet riders at once, these watchers of news across four regions of the globe, and each of them gives you the most important news of the week from his region. Here in the studio, we have Andrew Miller covering Anglo-America. Hello. And we have Rufaro Manyepa who covered the Middle East a couple of weeks back for us. This week, he'll be filling in for Jeremiah Jacques and covering Asia. Hello. In Britain, uh, joining us by teleconference, we have Richard Palmer covering the Europe region. Good afternoon. And we have Mihailo Zekic, who is covering the Middle East. Good to be here. Andrew Miller, let's start with Anglo-America. You've been watching this region all week, every week. Uh, This weekend, what
3: stands out as the most important news? Yeah, several big stories this week. The U.S. government is planning to further debase its coinage by reducing the amount of nickel and a nickel and uh, other metals and other coins. Uh, Joe Biden is intentionally punishing homebuyers with good credit to subsidize people with shaky histories of paying off their debts. Uh, First Republic Bank may be collapsing. And most Americans are not going to hear a lot about these stories because Tucker Carlson was fired from Fox News. That uh, that last bit's probably one of the more shocking stories uh, of the week. Uh, and not only I just think that many listeners around the nation think that because Fox News has lost almost a billion dollars this week, uh, as their, their share prices are just plummeting as they've sacked their most popular news commentator in order to bring their network more in line with the rest of the corporate media. And this is after
2: Fox made that massive settlement with
3: Dominion voting machines,
2: just uh, our systems, uh, just paying out an enormous, I think it was about 800 million to Dominion voting systems rather than fight them in court. Uh, And then to voluntarily fire uh, the biggest name in news commentary... I would say, uh, and, and lose a billion dollars. There's something going on. That's worth more than a billion or billions of dollars to Fox news. And yet there's an even bigger story than that. What's, what's the biggest story this week?
3: Yeah. You know, it's a big, uh, a big news week when, uh, you've got bigger stories than that. And you, you might be kind of shocked at what I've chosen for this week because it's definitely not one of the high profile stories, but definitely one of the biggest is that Biden's domestic policy advisor, Susan Rice, announced she will be stepping down from her position in the White House and moving on to other things. Uh, In a more normal administration, the resignation of a domestic security advisor would not be groundbreaking news. Uh, Although in this particular administration, uh, you can make a strong case, and I hope to do that shortly, that uh, Susan Rice is actually the most significant person uh, in the Biden administration. But before I get into that, we'll hear from former acting director of national intelligence, Richard Grenell, on why Susan Rice is important.
0: Look, I've said it before, but I think it is worth repeating that Susan Rice is there inside the White House. She's been given a portfolio as to domestic policy. We all know that that's a joke. She doesn't know anything about domestic policy, but she's run the national security portfolio. She certainly has run the UN portfolio. She knows the State Department and really wanted to be the Secretary of State. So there's no question that she's running domestic and foreign policy. We've got a vice president who needs to spend most of her time uh, in the Senate because that's a 50-50 tie. So Susan Rice is extremely excited that uh, Vice President Harris is preoccupied in the Senate. And the shadow presidency of Susan Rice is front and center. There's no question about that.
3: All right. So just as you, uh, as you basically heard in that clip right there, uh, I'm gonna put this in a little more blunt language is that this is a very unusual administration in that Joe Biden is, uh, definitely exhibiting strong signs of senility. Uh, and, and many people agree that he's not actually running the republic. So if, if Joe Biden's not running the republic, who is? Uh, normally you'd think uh, constitutionally, if the president becomes incapacitated mentally, physically, or otherwise, it's supposed to be the vice president who takes over a lot of those duties. Uh, in this particular case, because of the staunch division between Republicans and Democrats in Congress, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris is basically a member of the legislative branch these days. She's the vice president serves as the president of the Senate and she's spending most of her time in the Senate trying to get democratic legislation passed through. Uh, so in the with Biden being senile and Harris spending most of her time in the Senate, uh, whoever's running America would have to be somebody near the White House with their own staff, with some experience in domestic policy and close to Biden. And it just so happens that Susan Rice is Biden's chief domestic security advisor. She has a staff of about 12 people uh, and her office is upstairs in the West wing of the white house. So she lives in the, or she works in the same building with Biden. And so as you heard from Grinnell and, and many others, um, her her role in advising domestic policy has more become her role in running domestic policy. Uh now, now Biden also has a chief uh national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, who works closely with the Secretary of State, uh, Anthony Blinken, uh, who probably do more of the foreign policy stuff than um uh, than Rice does. Uh but She's taken an unusually big role in running that, and she's close with Obama, and rumor has it in close contact with Obama. I think one of the people we quote uh, here at the Trump quite a lot, um, Mark Bradman, uh, who writes under the pseudonym Sundance, uh, kind of made a funny analogy. like He said sometimes you'll hear people talk about Obama talking into an earpiece to Biden. He's like, that, that is kind of funny. This isn't a Tom Cruise movie. He's like, if if Obama wants something done in the White House, it's like there's probably not a real earpiece. He's like, you just pick up the phone and call Susan Rice. She's right there in the White House. She has her staff in the White House. She's the one who's officially advising Biden on how to run domestic policy. But given Biden's mental decline is actually the one just running domestic policy.
2: So some people say good riddance. She's she's gone. Um is the, does this mean Obama has lost his power
3: over the White House? Well, I doubt that. I, I imagine uh, uh I imagine whoever replaces them there's been some rumors uh, about different names that they might replace them will also be someone close with Obama. Uh but it is also interesting that if she's moving on uh it could also be uh, <laughs> uh a sign that obama's moving on. The timing was really interesting is that as soon as susan rice um announced she was stepping down within 24 hours, both biden and harris came out and assured the american people that they are indeed uh running for the democratic nomination in the 2024 election. Now i think most people assumed that they were, but it's <laughs> just a little bit it's like kind of touchy, huh? It's like he's he, he wants americans to know that he's running cuz he seems a little nervous that um Barack Obama might not think that he's running in 2024. Uh, he, he might be. Uh, I'd probably do that if I were him. Uh, gearing up to uh, throw Biden under the bus for the inflation crisis and uh, have uh, Susan Rice be the, well, depending on how things go, either be the presidential nominee or the the domestic security advisor for someone else. So... Barack Obama has fallen
2: off of the radar for a lot of people. There's there's some out there who are still keeping track of him as best as they can. Um, why is it that you, as you're monitoring Anglo America, any tiny thing to do, you know, any any um, uh, news item that's even one or two degrees of separation between the White House and Barack Obama? Why why do you watch for that name uh, so? consistently, uh, even well after he's left office.
3: Yeah, well, there's a prophecy in Daniel 8 in verse 12, which talks about a host was given to him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it casts down the truth to the ground. And if you read that whole chapter, the hymn is referring to um, like an end time type of Antiochus Epiphanes doesn't actually mention Antiochus Epiphanes in the chapter because uh, it was written before Antiochus Epiphanes was born, but uh, all commentaries are pretty much unanimous that it's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes uh, and those who believe in prophecy and end-time type. That, and uh, our editor-in-chief uh, in the book we'll put in the show notes, America Under Attack, uh, identifies Barack Obama as a type of Antiochus Epiphanes who is here to cast down truth to the ground in America. And so that verse mentions that it's not its not just him. It's not a one-man show. He has a host of bureaucrats and CIA agents and Chinese spies and Wall Street ESG financers and uh, Silicon Valley moguls and uh, State Department employees and Deep State Department employees. Uh, but the, the focus of the verse is definitely that the Barack Obama or the Antiochus the figure is in charge. Uh, and so now with Biden in the White House, most people – whether you believe in Bible prophecy or not, uh, I think realize that Biden's not the one in charge, uh, and so they're they're looking for who is in charge. But it is also interesting is that in this particular case, Susan Rice is kind of the umbilical cord between uh, or the or the conduit or whatever analogy you want to use uh, between <laughs> Joe Biden and uh, and Barack Obama. And so when you see something like this, a domestic security advisor's resignation normally wouldn't be that significant. Uh, but in this case, it is a sign that the the Antiochus figure, the Obama figure, he's he's planning on doing something new. Uh, we can't know exactly for sure what new thing that is. Uh, I expect it might be a sign that he's getting ready to pull his support for uh, Biden in the 2024 nomination make him a one-term president, pick someone new. Uh, but however it is, it's the uh, the antiochus figure will remain in charge of the radical left movement until that movement's defeated. And we I did see Obama uh, endorse Biden's uh,
2: sudden you know somewhat sudden uh, official announcement of his reelection campaign, but keep an eye on what he is really up to. So keep an eye on Susan Rice and keep an eye on Barack Obama well thank you for that Mr. Miller watching the Europe region is Richard Palmer Mr. Palmer what do we have going on in Europe this week
4: well for the first time German fighter jets did a flyover in honor of Israel's independence day on uh, April 25th 26th marking 75 years of Israel's independence uh german fighter jets were there doing a flyover along with a few from some other nations some of their uh, eagle 2.0 jets had both the israeli and, and german flag so a big sign of unity in israel trusting in germany of course a long-standing forecast we've had is that uh Europe, uh, that Israel is going to be inviting Germany to play a much bigger role in the Middle East and in their region and deeply regret that. Brought had uh, some significant events between Azerbaijan and Armenia this week. Azerbaijan established a checkpoint on the only road from Armenia to the disputed region of Nagorno-Karabakh. And uh, Russia has kind of kept the peace in this area, but um, you know, this is a sign that Azerbaijan no longer fears Russia, and are just kind of doing whatever they want. Uh, It ups the pressure on... It's a reminder that the consequences of what's happening in Ukraine spread far beyond Ukraine's border, and uh, that uh, Russia has a lot to lose if they do badly there. Um, In Germany, we had the Alternative for Deutschland claim that they helped elect the mayor of Berlin this week. So relying on the support from the AFD is a big humiliation, a big no-go. Uh, Other leaders have stepped down when it was revealed that they had the support of the AFD. These particular votes were private. It's impossible to confirm, but it certainly looks like that. And it's uh, more sign of Germany's political paralysis where they couldn't kind of get a leader through the standard left wing, white wing centralist coalition. And the AFD stepped in there and uh, got at least a a tactical win. So more signs of political unrest in, in Germany.
2: So what is the uh the main story that you want to our listeners to focus on?
4: So the main story comes from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. They are one of the most reliable places for uh compiling figures on military expenditure and they concluded that military expenditure has reached its highest level ever. And uh I'll get into some of the details in a minute, but what I think is most interesting about this is that it's boring. (laughs) This is the world reaching the highest military spending ever. And it's kind of like, well, yeah, I saw this headline last year. Right. Um, We've been here before. We know it. We maybe saw the headline the year before, the year before that. We've gotten used to now the fact that every year we are reaching new highs when it comes to spending on the military. And you don't have to go back that far when that was not the case. You know, early 1990s, so-called peace dividend, uh, militaries around the world are cutting spending. This goes on probably until at least September the 11th. Then you, you even five, ten years on from September 11th, you start to get European countries still cutting their militaries, cutting back on military spending. Uh, you have talk of it maybe heading back up, heading towards Cold War levels. Uh, but now we're very firmly in this new era, so I think the this shows that uh, that we have quite uh, quite clearly turned a corner here, and so it's it's not super surprising. The defense spending it's at 2.2 trillion US dollars last year. That's up 3.7 uh, percent on the uh, year-on-year increase, with uh, the United States spending overwhelmingly the most followed by china
2: so there are more ways than ever to kill human beings and uh we're getting used to that we're getting comfortable with that and 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 barely even noticing that for someone who wants to kind of uh get a little bit of a jolt and uh sort of understand what it is uh what, what uh stage human history is at at this point uh where would you guide them
4: well, I think one interesting takeaway, important takeaway from this is your boost in military spending is pretty much correlated with how far you are from Russia. And so a lot of this is taking place in Europe. Um, I seem to be picking on the Baltic states this this week I, or this last few weeks. I'm surprised I didn't get any hate mail for calling Lithuania or Latvia Herb- herbivorous, which... <laughs> which is not really all that accurate for m- the vast majority of their history. Um, but they're kind of leading the ways. Their military spending is up quite significantly. Ukraine, of course, uh, by some measures, their military spending is up 640%. Poland, we've kind of talked about them becoming this military superpower in Europe. A lot of these figures haven't fed through yet, you know, because if you announced an increase to military spending last year, well... That's kind of probably hitting this year, and so those increases aren't taken into account in this kind of look in the rearview mirror from from Cypri. But you've got Europe profound changes in Europe happening because of what has been uh, triggered in Russia, and Europe kind of rearming other parts of the world as well. But this is exactly and very specifically what um, Trumpet Editor in Chief Gerald Flurry has been forecast. There's even a chapter in Russia and China in Prophecy, his uh, our booklet. Uh, that's called Russia frightens Europe and fulfills Bible prophecy on just how we're going to see the rise of a new world power. And I think in some ways that's more alarming than just the number of weapons. You know, if you look at a country, is America more dangerous because there are more guns there, say, than somewhere else? Well, you know, I don't know if that's a big measure. If if a neighborhood buys more guns, is that neighborhood necessarily more dangerous? Well, it depends on a lot of other factors, uh, The fact, though, that you're seeing the rise of new superpowers, the rise of countries that didn't feel the need to fight and defend themselves in history now starting to do that. That's a lot more worrying. And that points directly to this prophesied rise of a European beast power that's going to be a military power that will shock the world. That's uh, what you get from this data when you see what's happening in Europe. And that's something that, uh, that the Bible forecast and we've been talking about for a long, long time.
2: Russia frightens Europe and fulfills Bible prophecy and on the trumpet.com as you mentioned our listeners can find Russia and China in prophecy so Russia is frightening Europe and people close to Russia are buying and building more weapon systems so what is it that's happening in Russia and in Asia in general Rufaro Manyepa.
1: yeah uh We had a story this week that came out that Russia and China uh, have struck a deal to cooperate on maritime law enforcement in the Arctic. Who knows what that means or what that looks like, really, law enforcement in the Arctic, but they're going for it, and (laughs) that's something to keep an eye on. Uh, There's another story about how Taiwan uh, began requiring female reservists to undergo military training that just shows how concerned they are about uh, an incoming invasion from china that they're just preparing all of this and getting ready for something like that to happen another story was uh something that we've spoken about at the trumpet about russia's cruelty uh, in the war in ukraine Uh, apparently russia has placed landmines in over a million acres of ukrainian farmland According to Ukraine, it's going to take them decades to find and remove all of the landmines that they've placed here. This is land that uh, has already been recaptured by Ukraine, that Russia, on its way out, left all these landmines for them to deal with. So that just shows you, as we've been pointing out at the trumpet for a while, the cruelty uh, that Russia is is employing in its war in Ukraine. Another one which is significant, uh, what's happening in America's backyard, is last week, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, uh, ended a five-day tour of Latin America. He visited Brazil, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba. And then this week, uh, China's premier met with the delegation of Cuba's Communist Party, Both Russia and China getting together, meeting up with these uh, figures from America's backyard. And we've spoken about this plenty of times at the Trumpet as well, about watching for an alliance between these foreign powers and Latin American nations right in America's backyard. And just how dangerous that will be when all of these nations come together against the United States.
2: I'm sure that will be our lead story more than once in the future. But for this week, you've got something else for us as the main news
1: out of Asia. Yes, uh, this Wednesday, Chinese President Xi Jinping was on the phone with Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine. And uh, Zelensky said that it was a long and meaningful telephone conversation that they had. And uh, basically what came out of this was... The fact that China is going to be trying to broker a peace deal between the Ukraine and Russia, um, he uh, President Xi said that uh, talks were the only way out of war with Russia, and uh, <laughs> it's all it's all really interesting uh, because you know China China is so friendly with Russia. China hasn't condemned Russia. And its approach to this war, China has been purchasing a lot more Russian oil, effectively helping to finance the war against the Ukraine. Uh, All of these signs pointing to how China itself should not be the one advocating for peace and and saying that it it can broker peace talks, but it's doing it and it's trying it. And the Ukraine is welcoming it Uh, right after the phone call. Zelensky appointed a former cabinet minister to be Ukraine's new ambassador to Beijing, and sent him over there right after the call. China said that it was sending some diplomats over to uh, Ukraine in order to to begin uh, everything that's necessary for the peace talks. And you know, she's saying all the right things. He's saying there's no winner in a nuclear war. We need to make sure that we find peace. Um, but a lot of the a lot of the <laughs> reality on the ground says something else but the United States for its part is welcoming this uh John Kirby came out and he said he said we certainly welcome any effort to arrive at peace as long as that peace could be just and could be credible so the United States sees China stepping in to negotiate this peace and it says oh we go ahead we like this keep doing this and <laughs> all of this is really dangerous because it comes right off to China brokered uh, a a, a peace between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And here, listen to this uh, clip from uh, Tucker Carlson talking about the significance of China brokering the Saudi-Iran peace.
0: Earlier this month, Iran and Saudi Arabia, the two most significant powers in the Muslim world, announced that after generations of proxy wars and snarling hostility to one another, they will be resuming diplomatic relations. Peace has broken out between blood enemies. As recently as last year, very few would have thought that could happen. And now it has happened. And it's happened, and here's a significant thing from an American perspective, it's happened because China, not the U.S. State Department, but the communist Chinese government, brokered the deal. The world's largest atheist state has halted religious conflict between two theocracies.
1: So there you hear it. You know, you can be as skeptical as you want about, you know, whether this peace is going to last, China's motives, all that. Fair enough. But, you know, you, you, you look at the recent history, you know, like, like uh, Tucker Carlson said in there, this is an atheistic nation brokering a peace between two antagonistic theocracies. Right, and it, it and it did it for however long it lasts. China went in there and it did it, and if it goes in and establishes something concrete with the Ukraine and Russia, China is two for two. You know, if if there's any two groups that you know could point to credibility for China doing something meaningful with Ukraine and Russia, it's Saudi Arabia and Iran. You know, they're very comparable. The hostilities there, but you know the the point here is. You know, as Mr. Gerald Fleury said in his recent article, the Ukraine war will not start World War III, he said that, you know, the war could last for years. Who knows um, how, how long it's going to go for? But one thing you can watch for is that America will not be the decisive factor in this war, right? And w- we're seeing now with China stepping into this role as the, the world's chief negotiator of peace. Uh, we can see the global hierarchy of power is changing.
2: Russia and China working with each other from the Arctic, as you said, to the conflict in Ukraine, to resolving and taking advantage of the conflict in Ukraine and the United States, letting it happen for all its billions and billions and billions poured into Ukraine. Uh, some of us thought that, you know, this administration or this uh, regime, I should say, uh, would would not let Ukraine go. And now China's stepping in and we're seeing, uh, the United States left empty handed as that article. You said the Ukraine war will not start world war three, uh, states anywhere else. Uh, our listeners can look for a little more information
1: on this. Yes. Uh, uh we've referred to it several times, but a classic article by Mr. Flurry, what are the times of the Gentiles? He references, uh, the prophecy that Jesus Christ made in Luke 21 verse 24 talking about the gentiles these non-israelite nations that you would see America which once was you know eminent in the world unquestionably leading influencing America is cannibalizing it's it's falling it's it's no longer as eminent or as important as as it is and in many cases it's abdicating its formerly held responsibilities and now it's being replaced by these gentile powers by nations like china and and russia and these instances of china in saudi arabia and iran and here with the ukraine show this prophecies of fulfillment beginning to take place in a very real way so that article there by mr Gerald flurry really will help to contextualize all these events and going forward as you see China's activities there, to really see how it's going up and the United States is on the way down and out.
2: That was, what are the times of the Gentiles? What are the times of the Gentiles? Gentiles, of course, a term that merely means the nations, uh, nations that uh, did not descend from ancient Israel. Uh, Another region being more and more dominated, not by the United States and the other nations of Israel, but by the other nations is the Middle East. Mihailo Zekic, you watched the Middle East for us. What's been going on in that region?
5: Well, quite a bit. Um, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's in election mode. They have an election for the president in, in Turkey next month, but he's been ill for quite a few uh, days this week. He's had to cancel rallies. He uh, he uh, said he caught an illness in the uh, on the same day he was taking an interview against some sort of infection. Uh, we uh, think that Turkey may or may not have a leadership change in the near future, so that's something we're watching. A bit more serious news, uh, in the Gulf of Oman, uh, to the south of the Arabian Peninsula, the Iranians have uh, captured, or taken hostage rather, an oil tanker, um, which was uh, connected to Turkey, registered in the Marshall Islands, commissioned by Chevron to be sending oil from Kuwait all the way to Houston. So, a lot of different countries... In the middle there people are looking at that and uh, wondering okay what's the United States gonna do about this this is obviously it's not an American ship per se um, America hasn't done anything too much of it lately Iran does this kind of thing all the time so it's in one sense it's not too big of a story but at the same time it always makes waves no pun intended um, whenever anything like this happens and there has been um, uh, more uh Uh, tensions on the Syrian Israeli border. Uh, Israel shelled some targets in southern Syria on Monday. Uh, There's been talks that Hezbollah has been operating uh, from Syria. Well, they are operating from Syria. But uh, uh, you're seeing uh, Israel go after this group, not just in Lebanon, but also in other parts of the world where they're based from.
2: So I'm just thinking back as you're talking there too. Uh, when I first started to sort of watch the news, I guess. Um, any one of those stories would have been probably a feature print edition story in the in the Philadelphia trumpet uh, at that time. Uh, but you're going to bring us something that's even more significant. What what's what what should our listeners uh, really kind of sink their teeth into on this?
5: Well, this time you be, might be happy to know it's not about Saudi Arabia. Um, <laughs> this time on uh, April twenty fifth, uh, Israel held its Memorial Day. That's the day they get or their uh, national day on commemorating fallen soldiers. Of course, Israel has uh, a lot more so- soldiers killed in the line of duty than most Western democracies do and but it's something else that happened on that day that involves Israel. Um, Russia currently holds the United Nations Security Council's rotating presidency that's for those that aren't familiar the top body in the UN where Russia, America, China, France, and Britain hold permanent veto seats and other countries filter in through uh, uh, elections and they decided to call an impromptu meeting on Israel's Memorial Day to uh, talk about how to Uh, deal with the Palestinian issue, how to uh, stop uh, Israeli aggression against Palestinians. Now, this kind of thing is not nothing new for the UN. The UN is a bit notorious for its anti-Israel bias. But the fact that Russia impromptu called this on this particular day, when Israel's commemorating its own soldiers that are killed in the line of duty, was seen as a particular um, snub or shall we... uh, it's so a slap a in, the in the face yeah slap in the face I was gonna say a punch in the nose um to Israel now I- interestingly enough uh Israel actually wasn't too concerned about having that uh meeting called in the first place um I guess they're used to it at this point but they requested several times that the date be changed and Russia said no now the the rationale for this is that Israel's been a bit critical for uh, uh, Russia's war in Ukraine lately, and pe- analysts are seeing that maybe this is a tit-for-tat kind of thing. But still, this is a pretty big insult. Here is the um, uh, a clip from the uh, ambassador to the UN from Israel talking about uh, what's going on. This is at the meeting itself, and uh, right after this clip, him and the Israeli delegation just get up and leave while the meeting just continues on unopposed. If this Council refuses to respect their memory, I will dedicate this speech to their memory. I light this candle, Mr. President, to honor them
4: and may their memory be blessed. I'm sorry, but I refuse to spend this sacred day listening to lies and condemnation. This
5: debate disgraces the fallen and Israel will not take part in it.
4: Thank you, Mr. President
5: so as you heard there israel's not taking it not taking it lightly the reason i want to single this out as being important imagine say syria or north korea having the power that russia has right now and impromptu calling a uh, a meeting about how to kick america out of the middle east on 9 11. that's basically what this was again The U.N. has been pretty uh, infamous for its anti-Israel bias, but they're usually a little bit more underhanded about it than this. They're usually uh, usually there'll be some sort of terror attack in Jerusalem or uh, an Israeli raid in the West Bank or something like that. And that'll be the instigator from this. In this case, you're having Russia, who's causing the biggest war in Europe since the Second World War who's committing things that are qualifiable as war crimes themselves. Sergey Lavrov, uh, as uh, Rufaro, uh, Rufaro mentioned him earlier, a year ago people asked him why is Russia trying to denazify Ukraine when the president is Jewish, and he said that, well, Hitler may have had Jewish blood. Jews are the worst anti-Semites. That's the kind of regime that's holding this meeting, and if you go on YouTube and see videos of this meeting, you'll see most of the seats on all the other members' of the security council most of them are full it's talking about western democracies like france britain malta switzerland they all came for the meeting they all would have known what russia was doing they all would have known russia was in no place to be getting this kind of criticism to anybody says yeah this is something worth showing up for this is important and so the israeli uh un representative i forgot to mention his name gilad erdan rightly so you could see he's pretty angry like what are you doing here this is the kind of stuff you know that maybe you could have gotten away with before the holocaust when it was fashionable to say blame jews for some of the world's problems this is not in response again to any uh raid in the west bank or anything like that the old they're targeting israel we said this uh on the trumpet before they're targeting israel for no other reason than that because they are israel because they are jewish and that's been the undercurrent of the UN's bias for years, but we can see here they're starting to get to the point where they're not really afraid to hide it anymore.
2: Hate. We're talking about hatred. And when you see a strong trend toward hatred of Jews, there is something very big and very dangerous in motion. What are the last couple of things you want people to keep in mind on this subject?
5: I mean, when you look at global anti Semitism, anti Semitism is one of those hates that gets a lot more attention from the global community and a lot more toleration than other isms. Um, And rationally, there's really no reason why you look at um, a lot of these Western liberal democracies, they'll be the first ones to wave the flag of multiculturalism or um, homosexual rights and that sort of thing. But when it comes to the Jews, that's a different story. And if you ask them why, if you show them the facts, they most likely would not be able to answer why they have some sort of intrinsic bias Uh, the bible however does give the answer um the jews obviously factor heavily in god's plan the editor-in-chief of our predecessor magazine mr herbert w armstrong said that uh, would often say that the bible is a book about israel which of course includes the jews and other nations only as they come into contact with israel Romans 3 talks about that unto the Jews were given the oracles of God. The Bible also reveals as a devil and that the devil is trying to oppose everything that God is doing. And in this case, the Jews don't know it. The rest of the world doesn't know it per se, but the Jews factor into God's plan. So the devil is trying to counter them every chance he can as well. Revelation 12 verse 10 calls Satan the accuser of our brethren, the accuser of god's people and that he accuses them day and night um you can look at other verses like luke four verses five to six where it talks about he rules the world ephesians two two where he works inside men and he's infusing he's surcharging the air of his world with this attitude of anti-semitism with this attitude of we don't like the jews and we're going to oppose them every chance they get at this point um uh a meeting at the un is not going to be Uh, sending people to the deaths per se but we talk about this program who knows how many uh, times the people of israel including the jews of the middle east face a lot worse anti-semitism to come like uh the likes of which uh is best comparable to the holocaust but in an even worse level than that so that is the ultimate cause of why we have this irrational anti-semitism around the world
2: and you supplied to me the article, The One Minority Society Loves to Hate. That's on thetrumpet.com. The One Minority Society Loves to Hate. I heard a man say that anyone who rejects the Bible as a legitimate document has to explain to me the Jews. The very existence of the Jews. And I would add, hatred for the Jews. You have to account for that. And you uh, just did there, Mihailo zekic Thank you for helping us stop for a minute and... Uh, I see why you were compelled to bring us uh, this and highlight this and help us understand the historical moment that we are in, a chilling one indeed. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, we'll discuss a major topic and its numerous ramifications, Sudan. Stay with us on KPCG and Trumpet Hour. Thank you for staying with us on Trumpet Hour Weekend Review here on KPCG. I'm Philip Nice with our panel of Richard Palmer, Andrew Miller, Rufara Manyepa and Mihailo Zekic. And in the second portion of this program, we're going to be talking about what's happening in Sudan. Mihailo Zekic, give us the who, what, when, where of the events unfolding right now as we speak in Sudan.
5: Well, in 24 hours time, the who, what, where, when might change completely. It's been really chaotic over there, but I'll do my best so a couple of weeks back out of nowhere two rival factions in the sudanese military decided they were going to attack each other um we don't know who fired the first shots we don't know what the immediate cause was but the main uh branch of the military led by abdel Fattah al burhan who's more or less the military dictator of sudan he's been running the country for the past uh, couple of years With the help of the Rapid Support Forces, which are um, the the successors to Arab militias that were notoriously um, bloodthirsty, shall we say, in the Darfur uh, conflict from years back, Um, their leader, who goes by the nickname Hemeti... He uh, is in a bit of a power-sharing uh, struggle with uh, Burhan, and uh, looks like the two of them are duking it out, trying to see who's going to become or, or stay the military dictator of Sudan. Fighting is pretty heavy in the capital Khartoum, as well as the big city next door, Onderman. There's also fighting in the Darfur region. Again, it's a bit chaotic. Nobody really knows um like there, were, there were rumors back and forth that one group has the airport, that another group has the airport. Who has the presidential palace? There's uh, not a lot of information coming out. Both of these groups are really well armed, so it's not like a like a ragtag group of rebels against a powerful establishment. Um, you can see videos of uh, proper anti-aircraft guns and and going after state-of-the-art helicopters. So it's a pretty large-scale war. The big reason that everybody's – well, there's a couple of big reasons. One thing, there's a lot of foreign nationals from a different, West, a lot of different Western countries stranded in there. Um, some countries have had uh, greater success in getting them out of there than others. And there's also a lot of um, foreign support. Burhan is uh, sponsored by Egypt, which is also under a, a military regime of sorts. They're desperate to not let uh, Burhan leave office. Hemeti uh, – Meanwhile, is sponsored by Khalifa Haftar, who is a bit of a notorious Libyan warlord. He's also sponsored by the Wagner Group, a Russian mercenary group. There's even rumors that the United Arab Emirates are getting involved on the side of the rapid support forces. So it's starting to involve a lot of different people from a lot of different places. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows how it's going to end. Uh, so far, over 300 people killed and thousands injured. And so this story is going to be rapidly developing in the days to come. One of those Western countries with citizens stranded
3: in Sudan is the United States of America, Andrew Miller. Yeah, this is a conflict that involves many different regions of the world. But I think one of the the biggest angles that affects America is just how the evacuation was conducted. Now, the, the U.S. Uh, embassy in Sudan did evacuate its 100 employees on Sunday. Uh, then it waited two days, and then the State Department issued the following statement. It says, "...due to the uncertain security situation in Khartoum and the closure of the airport, it is not currently safe to undertake a U.S. government-coordinated evacuation of private U.S. citizens." Uh, Then it advised the around 16,000 Americans believed to be around Sudan to remain in in shelter-in-place till further notice. So that's quite a few, um, quite a few Americans that are just being left behind in Sudan. It's, um, it's elicited comparisons to the Afghanistan evacuation. Now, it isn't, in fairness, I guess, to the U.S. government, it isn't quite that bad because, like, Afghanistan was a nation under U.S. control. We were evacuating our military and leaving citizens behind. In this case, Sudan was never under U.S. car control, and the State Department has been telling citizens for years that it's dangerous, don't go there. And so for the 16,000 people who went there anyway, we don't have a legal and perhaps not even a moral obligation to get them out. It would still be a nice courtesy to American citizens. Uh, plus the fact that France is getting their nationals out, so is Germany, so is italy so is britain so is spain so is holland so is turkey so is japan so is south korea so is jordan so is south africa so is egypt and so is saudi arabia so we're now in a standpoint where like it's literally if you're a south african citizen in Sudan, your government is doing more to help you than if you're an american citizen in Sudan.
2: i i would challenge that assumption that uh it doesn't have a moral obligation um uh the fact that it's not as bad as Afghanistan, (laughs) as you know, as we've talked about, uh, is is no um uh no consolation to the to what's unfolding. I mean they're American citizens uh and if other countries are getting their people out um saying everybody just calm down at least until the the Americans are out um not just for those Americans' sake, right? I mean, also for the sake of American power, so that the Afghanistan domino doesn't knock down the Sudan domino, doesn't knock down the, you know, um,
3: the dominoes that would fall uh, around the world. And it's definitely uh, a fulfillment of that Leviticus uh 26, verse 19, prophecy about God breaking the pride of your power to where whether we have a legal obligation or not, the fact that Jordan and South Africa are actually using the pow- what little power they have uh, to get in there and get their people out while America is just like, well, just bunker down in a cow shed someplace because uh, it's not currently safe for us to send in uh, military troops to help you get back home. And I'm not sure we I can th- trust that it's not safe
4: this is what i think is and this is the angle i think is fascinating is it was a failure to exact it to evacuate from sudan that was also seen as kind of a big marker of the fall of the british empire and i do kind of agree like, i don't think this is the same as afghanistan because afghanistan is america's fault in a way that's or, or responsibility in a way that you know sudan's been a mess for hundreds of years they didn't cause the problems there um but i in similar when similar African countries have fallen apart in the past, America has gone in. When you had violence in Sierra Leone and some of these other places, America has gone in and gotten its civilians out of there. Uh, so it is a big marker, even if it's maybe not on quite the same scale. It's a big marker when they're not doing that in Afghanistan. And yet yeah, I mean, to me, what popped into my mind was 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 General Charles Gordon and this. Uh, famous incident where britain left one of its most famous characters behind to die in sudan um you know charles gordon he's somebody who's who's fairly peripheral not people aren't super familiar with him i was listening to a podcast about him a few months ago they were kind of arguing on there that at the time he was the most famous man in the world uh he was he was a big deal he he had led what uh, the ever victorious army that was it It he led the ever victorious army in the taiping rebellion in china uh um, you know, he had met with queen victoria things like this sudan was falling apart um and the british government sent in charles gordon uh to go and and he'd been in sudan he was fighting the slave trade in sudan before many years ago so they're like well we'll send him in Um there's lots of confusion as to exactly what he was told to do um you know, the government kind of claimed well we just sent him in on a fact-finding mission he seemed to somehow get the impression he was going in on a rescue mission. He ends up holed up up in in Khartoum, and there's this big debate over, do we go and rescue him? And uh, Gladstone didn't really want to. He was not really a very interventionist prime minister. Queen Victoria did want to. Eventually, public pressure succeeds. Britain sends in a rescue mission that arrives in Khartoum two days too late. And General Gordon has been killed. And this failure to rescue General Gordon, Churchill writes about this, um, well, Churchill ends up being there at the uh, the Battle of uh, is it Ombudsman, or however you pronounce it, where Gordon is kind of avenged uh, against the Mahdiist radical Islamist forces. Uh, but it's a uh, it was a major marker, and it's kind of like, well, we're we're back we're back to Sudan, uh, just like we were back in Afghanistan. You know, it, it was the route Britain's humiliating route in Afghanistan as well was a major lot of loss of British prestige. Uh, I mean, you can see America following in the same footsteps as Britain in terms of the decline of empire, except in British ca- Britain's case, there was an empire waiting in the wings. Uh, I, don't know, I use empire very loosely, but a world power waiting in the wings that has very similar values, very similar um, you know, worldview and things like this. And the fall of Britain was still a, a traumatic period. There was. It meant that you had countries like Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union come along and think, well, we have a shot at being number one. Thankfully, neither of those happened and the world kind of went to America. Now you see America following in the path of Britain, though. Who's next? You know, where is there an empire with similar values waiting to take over? And there's not. It's countries like China and other, other rivals that have very different backgrounds. And it's a sobering look at uh, you know, where where this world is headed without intervention.
2: And that's why we group this region into Anglo America, England America, you could say. Um, and a nation's power is made up of week to week events, week to week decisions. Um, are we seeing any other uh, overspill from Sudan beyond this uh, this historic weakening of America?
1: Well, um, that's that's where you know it comes into what Mihailo was saying earlier about the Wagner Group, and you know it's. Like there's there's a lot of talk about how, you know, the Kremlin itself might be using that group as a bit of a proxy, you know, to 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 get a foothold there in Sudan. And um, there's this uh, there's a diplomat who was talking to the Africa report who said that Sudan is Moscow's main gateway to Africa. This will allow it to radiate into neighborhood neighboring countries like Libya, Central Africa, potentially Chad. Russia has been so interested in constructing a naval base on the Sudanese coast, you know, you've got the Red Sea right there, uh uh so close to Sudan. You know, it's it's really important for them to to, to somehow they they're, they're kind of hedging their bets right now. Uh Moscow, they they're trying to uh you know, be friendly to both sides. All they want is just to make sure whoever wins at the end of this conflict, they're able to still influence proceedings in there. And so it, that's what makes it so You know, unfortunate what you're seeing with the United States just not really caring what's happening there, and you've got you know Russia really hawkish looking at everything that's happening and just saying, "Look, we just we just need to get a foot in there. Whatever happens here, we need a vested interest." And it's the same for nations like China. I'm pretty sure uh, European nations are going to be you know having conversations in the background, you know, trying to see how they can have control because we've written for a while at the trumpet about how. You know the thing with african nations is you'll see these greater powers come in and try to stabilize these failing democracies in the interest of gaining all the resources and strategic points that they have in those countries and that's something we can expect
2: and as richard palmer said rufaro maniapa who is waiting in the wings just as you said there it's china it's asia it's uh the other nations that did not descend from israel and it's going to be a very different time when those nations take power. Well, thank you, Rufaro Manyepa, Richard Palmer, Mihailo Zekic, and Andrew Miller for being our panel once again this week. We invite our listeners to email us your thoughts on the program, and you have been doing so. We thank all of you who have been writing into letters at thetrumpet.com. And we want to thank also Nick Irwin and Jesse Hester and Parker Campbell for all their work engineering and producing the show. I'm Philip Nice. That's your Trumpet Hour Week in Review. Join us on Wednesday for the next episode of Trumpet Hour. We will be focusing the entire show on the coronation, the British Empire that you just heard a little bit about, and what made Britain and America so different in the first place. We hope you'll join us then, and we thank you for joining us today on Trumpet Hour.